Welcome to the Rehope Podcast. Before we dive into this week's message, we'd like to provide you with some helpful resources. If you'd like someone to pray for you, it would be our joy to connect with you. So please email us at prayer at rehope.co.uk. If you'd like to get connected with an online Bible read-through group from wherever you are in the world, you can email brt at rehope.co.uk and be a part of a small group of people reading through the Bible cover to cover each year. Finally, if you would like to support the work and ministry of Rehope financially, you can do so online at rehope.co.uk slash giving. We pray you find this message encouraging, enlightening, and helpful. Enjoy. All right. Welcome. Hey, my name's Wade. I'm one of the elders here at uh, Regarding Hope, and it is good to be back here again and excited for this season of Advent, huh? Christmas, Thanksgiving was this week, so now I can officially slide in and get started getting excited about uh, 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 Christmas. Christmas songs in, in September, uh, they don't work in our household. No, it's not allowed, not until after Thanksgiving. So we ate the turkey, we're ready to go. So here we are, and I am excited. Advent, what is Advent? The word Advent, it's not something we use too often anymore, but it simply means... The arrival of something or someone significant. Something that represents significant change. So, for example, the advent of the Gutenberg printing press changed the world. It changed the world. It changed the way we exchange and express ideas. It made it possible for each one of us to own our very own Bible. It changed the world. The advent of penicillin, it changed modern medicine. It changed the world forever. It changed the way we treat infection. Most of us here at some point has probably taken an antibiotic for something, and we don't really even think twice about it. It's like, sweet, I've got some medicine. Whereas not that long ago, in the scheme of things, uh, that same infection would have probably been, most certainly been, life threatening. So Advent, what does that mean for us? The Christian calendar, Advent marks a season of remembrance and expectation. We remember one of, along with the resurrection, we remember one of the most important moments in history when God that created the heavens and the earth became flesh and dwelt among his people. God dwelt among us in physical form. We call this the incarnation of God. Maybe you've heard that. Well, you know, this time of year, when it's cold outside, these autumn days, you know, nothing like a big bowl of chili con carne to warm the soul, right? You know where I'm going with this, right? Yeah, okay, it's lovely. Well, this Christmas, I want you to think of Jesus as Deus con carne, God with meat. Yeah, you're welcome. You're welcome. So every time you have that bowl of chili now, you're going to think God with meat, and it's going to be disturbing, and I love it. God with us. Advent remembers a time in the past and marks a, marks a significant event. For us, it's the birth of Jesus. The long-awaited, the coming of the long-awaited Savior. It also has a second meaning for us. 
because we know how the story ends, right? Because we're all in Bible read-through groups. We know how this ends. We know that Jesus is coming back. The second coming of Jesus. And so Advent is remembering the first coming and what Jesus did. It's also an eager expectation of the future coming of Jesus and its significance in what Jesus will do with judgment, justice, and the making of all things new. So these four weeks on the run-up to Christmas Sunday, traditionally the church focuses on four things, hope, joy, love, and peace. And this, the first Sunday of Advent, we're going to focus on hope. So what is hope? Well, in our vernacular today, we use the word hope as a synonym for wish. Yeah? If you think about it, how many times have we done that this week? Man, I hope my turkey isn't dry for Thanksgiving. That was mine. Huh? I hope the traffic isn't bad so we can get there on time. I hope I get to go home for Christmas this year. I hope I pass my exams. I hope we can afford to I hope we can afford heating this winter. I hope I don't have to go home for Christmas. I hope my mental health improves. I hope my parents will be proud of me. I hope this isn't going to be another one of those depressing Christmas messages. <laughs> oh, you're going to be so disappointed. No, how we use hope, how we use hope is how we define it. And we can bring that definition, this anxiety of uncertainty, to the hope we see in the Bible. So on the first Sunday of Advent, we're going to focus on hope. So what is it we put our hope in? How do we live with hope in times of uncertainty? We live in a world of uncertainty. And Christmas is a time of year that can be a challenge for most of us. In the midst of the spicy pumpkin lattes, uh, the sausage dogs at the Christmas market downtown, all the wonderful things that Christmas brings, it can also be a time of difficulty and uncertainty. It's the first Christmas away from home. It's the first Christmas without a loved one. Maybe conflict or grief. So how do we live with hope in times of uncertainty. Well, here's where we're going to start. We're going to start here. Christian hope is not wishful thinking. It's not wishful thinking. Christian hope is an expectant leap forward. It's action rooted in assurance. We live in motion, trusting God with the outcome. 1 Peter 1.13 says this, Therefore, with your minds ready for action, be serious and set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I love the message here. It translates like this at the beginning. It says, roll up your sleeves. Christian hope is about rolling up your sleeves and getting to work. It's moving forward in action sort of hope. Hope that makes us ready and willing to get our hands dirty, to labor, to toil towards expectation and promise. But this is radically counterintuitive to the pop culture rendering of hope that we hear today. Christian hope is shaped by a resilience 
and fortitude that is woefully missing in today's view of hope. Christian hope does not shy away from, but rather rushes towards suffering, pain in this world. Tim Keller writes this. He says, While other worldviews lead us to sit in the midst of life's joys, foreseeing the coming sorrows, Christianity empowers its people to sit in the midst of the world's sorrows, tasting the coming joy. Christian hope is not deceived by the world's promise of comfort and ease in this life, all while waiting anxiously for the trouble to come. No. Christian hope. We're called to put our trust in the promises of Jesus. And here's the promises. You will have suffering in this world, but I have overcome the world. And I will always be with you. Christian hope settles into the struggle of human experience with strength and resolve. Yes, of course, there's pain, there's suffering in this life, but Christian hope enables its participants to stand tall and move forward with courage and peace. Is that how you define hope? Let's reorient our minds this morning. So we're going to start, or we're going to be in Luke 1 this morning, looking at a pre-Christmas story and see a story of perseverance, doubt, and hope. But first, we're going to begin in the Old Testament. I know you woke up this morning and you were thinking, you know, it's the first, it's the last Sunday. It's the first Sunday of Advent, the last Sunday of November. What about Malachi? That's what you were thinking, I know. So I figured that's what I need to address. So we're going to start there. I'm going to address that. Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. It's written 400 years before the birth of Jesus, and then God goes silent. 400 years, no books are written, no prophets of God speak. But before God goes quiet, uh, the prophet of Malachi tells us what God's going to do. Malachi is a call for Israel to return to God before the Messiah comes to earth. It's written to a people that are supposed to be living in eager expectation of his coming. But they haven't seen him yet. We are in a special situation. We have this privilege of looking back in remembrance, not anticipation of the Messiah who lived, who died, and who rose from the dead over 2,000 years ago. The book, of Messiah, uh, the book of Malachi ends like this. Malachi 3.1 says, See, I'm going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. Then the Lord you seek will suddenly come into his temple, the messenger of the covenant you desire. See, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And then Malachi 4, 5, it says, See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will return the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents. Or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. The message of Malachi is not just a shape up because the Messiah is coming. It's a call to evaluate ourselves. And this is why it's a message for Advent today. Malachi was written to a people that weren't measuring up to what was required of them. And he's calling them to be introspective, to evaluate their walks with God. And this Advent message, the Advent message is the same. To stop, 
to take inventory of our lives. We're living today, are we living today with Jesus as our only hope? Do we measure up to what the death, burial, and resurrection requires of us? Do our actions line up to the hope we have into the future coming of Jesus with its judgment that it brings? The beginning of the Christmas story starts at the end of this 400 years of waiting. And we're introduced to an exemplary couple, Zechariah and Elizabeth, who lived in eager expectation of the coming of Jesus. And yet they had a lifetime of pain, loss, and missed expectations. And that began to erode the hopes for one of them. So here we go. Luke chapter 1, verse 5. We're going to start in verse 5. And it begins like this story begins like this. In the time of Herod the king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. Herod the Great, as he was called, was a maniacal, evil genius. Uh, He is the template for every Bond villain that we've ever seen. He is evil. He's smart. He's a total narcissistic sociopath. No wonder he's a politician, right? He's completely godless. And yet he rebuilds the Jewish temple. In God's sovereign uh, plan, he uses a godless man to prepare the way for Jesus. Zechariah, he belongs to this priestly tribe. He's not a high priest. Think Pastor Brian Luce. Do you know who Brian Luce is? Exactly. You don't. He's a pastor friend of mine in a church just outside of Glasgow. Uh, maybe you've heard of Billy Graham, John, J. John, N.T. Wright. These guys are big deals. Wade, Pastor Brian, Zechariah, nobodies. Nobodies. His wife, Elizabeth, she's a missionary's kid. Her family has always been in ministry. It's generational family work. To outside eyes, they're nobodies. They're not big deals. However, it says God loved them, and they loved God. They even loved God through a very tough and difficult life. They were old. And they didn't have kids. And this wasn't by choice. Not being able to have kids in the ancient world was believed, not biblically, but culturally, to mean God's favor was not on you. You've probably sinned or you didn't follow the law well enough. It meant that in your old age, you, did, you had no help, no retirement, no hospice care, no pension. There were no safety nets that we have today. To the community that they lived in, they had no hope. But not having kids wasn't about sin. It was about God's plan. And here they are. They made the Bible. 
You know why? Because they lived a life of trust and expectation. They had hope. They loved God. They served God. They walked with God. They moved forward through a life that didn't go their way. And they did it with hope. An eager expectation that the Messiah was coming. Their hope was in Jesus, not the safety and comfort of having kids. Now, that's not to say that there wasn't pain, loss, or grief. Living in hope is not an absence of pain, loss, and missed expectations. It's moving forward toward God and not moving away from Him. Luke 8, we pick it up here. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty, he was serving as a priest before God. He was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple before um, the temple of the Lord and to burn incense. And when the time of the burning incense had come, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Now, Zach here, he is about one of 8,000 individuals split into 24 divisions. They got called up twice a year to serve for one week. They would cast lots to go and to burn incense in the morning and the evening, uh, during the morning and the evening worship. This once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, this is, this is it. Uh, most would never, most of the priests would never get this opportunity. It's one shot. It's the World Cup final. It's the winning goal in extra time. That's how big of a deal it is. All right? So he goes in for his one shot to burn incense in the presence of the Lord. And this was, this, you go into the temple, and this was as close to the Holy of Holies that anyone other than a high priest could go. Now, there's a curtain. You remember in the, in the Jesus um, Easter story, right? The curtain is split in two when Jesus dies. He's the, the, right outside that curtain is where uh, you burn the frankincense and the myrrh. And so he takes his frankincense and myrrh, this incense, and he puts it on the coals and he prays. Now, this, this, this incense, this symbolizes in Scripture prayer. Okay, We see in Revelation, it talks about this big bowl that sets in the presence of God. And that bowl is filled with the prayers of God's people. So when you pray, think of it like that. That it goes into the presence of God. It ascends to Him and it smells sweet to Him. That your prayers smell sweet to God. It goes into the presence of God. What a glorious picture of prayer. And if you've ever wondered why there's incense burning in, in some traditions in the church, well, this is supposed to basically remind us of, oh, yeah, when I pray, these prayers go before God, and it's a sweet, sweet smell. And so when Zechariah, he goes inside, and he's at the altar of incense, and the assembly of worshipers are praying outside. And so this incense for which Zechariah is responsible symbolizes the prayers of an entire nation. And at that particular moment, Zechariah was therefore the focal point of the entire Jewish nation. And so then we see in verse 11... Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Now Luke doesn't record the prayer of Zechariah. 
Some would assume that he prayed for a son because the angel goes on to say, your wife Elizabeth, your prayers have been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you will call him John. But I believe in this once in a lifetime moment with the nation outside worshiping and waiting That when he went in to burn the incense, that he prayed in that moment the same prayers that thousands before him had prayed. And they prayed for the salvation of the world. That's the prayer that the priest would pray in that moment. Now, I have no doubt that Zechariah and Elizabeth's heavenly bowl was overflowing with the sweet fragrance of years of prayer for a child. But now they're old. In their minds, that time has passed. Have you been waiting or praying for something for a long time that doesn't seem to have seen an answer? The answer might not be no, just not yet. And the answer might not be what you expect. So don't give up hope, right? That's our takeaway from this, right? Don't give up hope, but we do. Because time and disappointment erodes at our hope, doesn't it? Or maybe it's because we're hoping in the wrong things. Are we hoping and trusting in outcomes Are we hoping and trusting in God himself? Are you hoping in what God can do for you today like he's some cosmic fairy godmother or a genie in the bottle? And if he would only grant me this one wish and fulfill my plans and my dreams, then I would be happy and joyful and have peace. Or is your anchor of your hope in what Jesus has already done? For Zechariah and Elizabeth, their years of unanswered prayer was, seen, was, was the unseen plan of a sovereign God to break the silence and prepare the way for Jesus. God's plan was to send a herald, a messenger, to make ready a people. Verse 14, he will be a joy, a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he, will make, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He will never take wine or for other fermented drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he's born. And he will bring many back. Uh, he will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in, great, in the great spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous. To make ready a people prepared for the Lord. After all this, there was two responses. Zechariah's response was one of close-minded doubt. He's like, what? I'm sorry? What's going to happen? There's no chance. Or as you might say here, nay chance. Right? I don't believe you. We're old. It can't possibly, possibly be this way. Has unanswered prayer fostered doubt in your life? 
Now, his gracious discipline, the angel makes Zechariah a mute. He can't speak. He comes out before all the people, and, uh, and they're asking, like, what took you so long? Why were you in there for so long? And he's doing all these. He can't talk, so he's doing all these charades, kind of trying to describe what was going on, and, and it, it's crazy. But then he goes home, and I love this is what happens. He said, I love what God does for Elizabeth. It's beautiful. Read this. It says in 24, after this, his wife... Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord, has done, uh, the Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor. Pregnant with a child she always wanted and a silent husband. <laughs> Pure joy. That was, that was a little bit too much laughter there. Pure joy. She's a nobody from nowhere, married to a man who smalled potatoes, and she says, you know what? God loves me. God knows me, and he's kept his eyes on me. And just as it's true for all of us, it goes on to say, he has taken away my disgrace among the people. That word disgrace or reproach it means Elizabeth was reviled. She was shamed and condemned. A person without grace. That's what disgrace means. She was abused. She, uh, uh, she suffered emotional, verbal, spiritual abuse for maybe for 30, 40, 50 years. The other religious and smug and, and uh, ungracious women would consider her cursed of God. Had she sinned? No. She had done, has she done anything wrong? Well, she wasn't perfect. But through all this, we're told that she loved and served the Lord. Was God cursing her? No. He was just working out his sovereign plan. His answer to her prayers wasn't no. It was just later. And later finally came. And her response was worship. See, their life was not in vain. The pain and the suffering was not wasted. Their hope not misplaced. It's part of God's perfect plan. Zechariah and Elizabeth in their old age miraculously gave birth to John the Baptist. To call the world to evaluate itself has prophesied to prepare for the coming of the hope of the world. And so how do we live with hope in these uncertain times? Well, first, today we hear the call to evaluate our own lives. Evaluate your life. Holy Spirit, reveal in us our false hope. The Christian story begins with the miraculous birth of John the Baptist. But John's life was to point forward to Jesus. Not only remove the disgrace and the shame from one old barren woman, but to deal with the sin and the shame of the whole world. Second, we hold fast to biblical hope. Jesus was and is 
the only true hope of the world. God in the flesh. He's our high priest. He is our sacrifice. He is our temple. He's our mediator. He is where we go to have our sin forgiven. He is what we gather around to worship. All the ministry of the temple is fulfilled in Jesus. And like Zechariah, if not only do we have access to the altar of incense, but through the blood of Jesus, we can step directly into the presence of God. Amen? For those of you that are here and you feel like you're Zechariah, there's doubt, there's unbelief. We want you to confess that to Jesus. This confession prepares the heart for the coming of Jesus right now into your life today. For those of you who are victims, you've been sexually abused, physically abused, verbally abused. You've been ripped off, cheated on, beat on, yelled at. Maybe like Elizabeth, you feel unseen and unloved. Today, God comes to take away, at this moment, your reproach, your shame, your disgrace. He came to take that on himself. It says when Jesus went to the cross, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. And so lastly, and I'll end with this. When our hope is in Jesus, we're empowered to live in motion. Trusting God with the outcomes. Action rooted in assurance. So church, it is time to roll up our sleeves. It's time to get your hands dirty. And like Zechariah and Elizabeth, to get on with the work of the gospel. Serving God and serving people. We can move forward through this life with strength and resolve and help others because we are with him. Jesus is the prize. Jesus is the prize. Do you get that? Jesus alone is the hope of the world. And you can have him right now, today. This Christmas, if your hope, joy, and love, and peace is, not rooted, is, is rooted in anything other than God becoming flesh in Jesus Christ, his life, death, and resurrection for the forgiveness of sin, then everything else is going to fall short. So this Advent season, let's once again make Jesus Christ our greatest hope and boast, our deepest longing and delight, and our most passionate song and message. Amen? Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this season that we get to focus on what Jesus has done for us, the forgiveness of sin, the uh, salvation, the eternity with Him. And we long also to remember and to look forward to that future day when Jesus returns and makes everything new. We love you. And so our response this morning is going to be to worship, to call out, worship your great and mighty name. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.